Hello and welcome to The Stockout. This is your show at FreightWaves for all things related to the consumer packaged goods industry, the CPG industry. This is a show we set aside 26 minutes every week to go through um, what I think is important on the CPG front, the items I've talked about in my newsletter, other things that we've said around the site. And uh, we did have a lot to say on the CPG industry this week, in addition to the typical uh, FreightWaves, uh, the Stockout newsletter. Uh, some of my colleagues wrote up articles on Kraft Heinz and their Lunchables. And another one wrote a humorous piece on Cadbury cream eggs. Uh, that was a Mondelez uh, property. So I can talk about both of those things, as well as you know, Utz reported earnings and uh, the freight markets. I can talk, talk about that like I usually do. It seems like we've had s- at least some signs of uh, stabilization that might be partially due to uh, March being a, a typically um, strong uh, month. Uh, so I'll talk about those things. And for anyone who has not um, already signed up for the Stockout newsletter, would encourage you to do that. Uh, please go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the Stockout. It's going to be right up there in, in top of newsletters. Also a lot of great um, other newsletters to, to keep you informed on your, your um, industry. I think the retail newsletter is very relevant for CPG industry, in addition to the cold chain newsletter and, and really sort of the, the modes newsletter, there's a lot of, of important things in there uh, too. So I encourage you to do that. And before we get into today's um, topics here, I'm just going to highlight a few upcoming guests on the Stockout. Don't have a guest today, but next week, March 13th, have Brian Gerber. He's the co-founder and CEO of a company called Hemper.com, as well as Hara Supply. So this is a company that sells cannabis-themed subscription boxes and sells all manner of cannabis uh, paraphernalia. You can imagine what those are. Go to um, you know, hemper.com and, and, and check it out for yourself. And whether uh, cannabis is something that you're interested in, in or not, I think um, you know we can really dig into a lot of the challenges associated with this direct-to-consumer commerce subscription-type boxes. A lot of the logistical challenges associated with that, I think, are very relevant for other types of subscription-based products. That's something CPGs are trying to make a big push into, really drives a lot of stickiness, recurring revenue. It's, it's really a valuable uh, source of um, you know income if you can get it. And so I think that'll be pretty insightful. And then um, the following week, uh, March 20th, we have a company called General Logistics Systems. It's a company that does shipping and tracing. And they're going to explain why uh, we think regional carriers can compete with sort of the big duopoly of FedEx and UPS and maybe um, you know disrupt that uh, duopoly. And if I had to guess as to why it has to do with uh, certain service requirements, one of the things they move heavily is is wine, which has a lot of uh, special service requirements. It's heavy. A lot of it's imported. So as we go through customs, it's breakable, you know, high value uh, product. And so really a lot goes into that. So we're going to learn about the wine logistics, among other, um, you know, sort of small package uh, logistics in that uh, presentation. And then March 27th, this is what I'm really excited about, uh, Kelly Thompson, um, head of North America for uh, Dumatuk. So Dumatuk is a, is a sugar uh, reduction startup, and they have this product called Incredo Sugar, which is designed to improve the efficiency of sugar delivery. So your sweet taste receptor receptors think you're getting the full sugar product, even though the sweetness, uh, so the perception of sweetness is there, while the actual sugar is reduced by thirty to fifty percent. No compromise on taste or texture. Have a little bit of a hard time wrapping my head around the technology there, but um, that one should be should be really interesting as as well, and that's a part of a big uh, push to improve the, the healthfulness of uh, consumer uh, food products. So 
I hope you can uh, join us for those um, sessions uh, on the Stockout. And so with that, I'll talk a little bit about my most recent, uh, the Stockout newsletter. And the topic of the newsletter was retailers have this big push for convenience. I think that was sort of the big takeaway for me. There's you know, a, a image of the newsletter uh, that someone in, in red, you know, maybe he works for Target, maybe he doesn't, you know, Target people wear red and, and you know, potentially could load, load up your pickup truck. And one of the things that Target talked about in its analyst call is not just having sort of this, you know, the, the, the pickup of the items you ordered online, but also making this big push into returns. And so you can actually do returns from Target while driving uh, through, you know, pick up, um, you know, some milk or whatever items you need at the same time while your child is sleeping in the back seat. They said they're still working on the uh, doing that for their Starbucks uh, you know, components there too, but they think that that's a big part of their their sales, and that's getting to be about uh, you know ten percent of their uh, you know business is um, you know, the e-commerce. In, in addition to same day fulfillment, which they do via via shipped, they do the you know, the pickups in most of their locations now. So a, a big push that Target's making into convenience. I think targeting sort of the higher um, sort of upper middle class a consumer, maybe a busier consumer. And uh, actually, Walmart has a lot of examples of this, too. Walmart's rolling out this service called Scan and Go, which essentially means you walk into a retailer, you bring up your app, you know, as you go in and put the items in your cart, you scan them on your phone, and that reduces any need to check out, wait for any kind of, um, you know, checkout counter, just, just leave the store right away. So that can save a lot of time, particularly on a, on a busy day. Um, they say they're, they're also doing same-day Delivery out of four thousand locations, which considering um, you know how many locations they have in the U.S., which is something like five thousand locations, uh, it's really um, you know considering it's it's, it's most of them uh, and really sort of leaning into convenience. And it's pretty clear uh, to me, at least, why um, the retailers are focusing on this. I think Amazon has demonstrated that people are willing to pay for the added convenience. Um, I think Walmart uh, and Target sort of tra- trying to target the higher income uh, consumers. Walmart actually had a lot of success with that targeting higher income consumers on the grocery side and getting those consumers to not only pick up more of their groceries at, at, at a Walmart, but also purchasing, purchasing more of their sort of also, you know, consumable products, things like personal care products, um, paper towels, things of, things of that nature. And then, um, you know, really a lot of those, uh, it's convenience type services, whether we're talking about scan and go, you know, pick up on the go, those type of things, um, you know, require the consumer to download an app and that app, you know, enhances the ability to track consumer data, which is very valuable for the retailer, which a lot of these retailers have growing revenue segments of selling consumer data, which is, uh, you know, very valuable to the CPG companies. They can target not just sort of specific demographics, but, uh, specific um, customers that have bought competing products. So, you know, someone bought a competing pr- product that competes directly with your CPG. You can then offer that specific person a promotion. Um, you know, I do think part of the reason why Kroger is acquiring Albertsons, it's not just to streamline um, their supply chain. I think it also is has a lot to do with the data uh, value of the data collection, uh, which should really be enhanced uh, after that, um, you know, merger. And then uh, the, the convenience aspect, I think, really helps these retailers compete better with Costco, which uh, is essentially a business model of consumers trading 
convenience, they trade off convenient hours, they can trade off convenience of finding things, trade off convenience of waiting in lines, um, you know, all for, for, for lower prices. And so it sort of, on a comparative basis, um, you know, makes those other retailers look even more uh, convenient versus uh, Costco. So it's, um, you know, clear, I, I think, uh, kind of the angle that they're, that they're participating in there. As far as what that means for CPGs, I think it's going to mean fewer impulse purchases. If they streamline all of these shopping trips, I think this, the impulse purchases are already under pressure. In the UK, you have this uh, new law where they can't have candy at checkout counters or end of aisles, which those things are designed to uh, boost impulse purchases. Uh, so that hurts a company, I think, like Mondelez that uh, you know, has a significant amount of its uh, sales based on uh, impulse purchases. And then, you know, all the data collection stuff I already talked about, I think that really is an opportunity for uh, CPGs consider uh, considering that they can really leverage, you know, who the, the target customers are. Now, with all those uh, added convenience items, I think it also does make it more convenient for, for thieves. I think the latest news um, in, at a Walmart is they're, they're closing nine stores, including the final two in Portland, Oregon, which has particularly lax uh, laws and enforcement related to uh, shoplifting. I think it's one thing that uh, we've seen sort of across the, the retail industry is the increase in uh, shrinkage. It's something both Walmart and Target um, have called out. It was uh, you know, one of Target's recent uh, analyst calls, you know, a quarter or two ago, they called out higher uh, shrinkage. And then when they gave their 2023 guidance, they talked about that as being an expected headwind for 2023 versus all of 2022. So they sort of see the pattern has increased. They don't see any reason why it would uh, retrench to, to previous uh, to previous years. So kind of a sad commentary on um, our culture that uh, sort of the, the, the shrinkage seems to be higher um, at the retailers. Uh, you know, with that, I'll move on to the next uh, topic uh, here, which is that Lunchables are going to be sold directly to schools. So this is an article that uh, my colleague Rachel Premack, uh, editorial director, uh, wrote up in the last few days, and this was a little bit uh, surprising to me. I mean, I think the, the original um, you know, question that I had was how was this going to uh, interact with uh, and comply with the new rules for uh, food health that's going to be um, required for school lunch programs. So just uh, in the last you know couple of weeks, um, the USDA rolled out new uh rules to um, on a nationwide basis that public schools have to comply not just with the trans fat laws which they already were complying with um, you know, this what we're seeing on the screen is a, is a newsletter I wrote you know a couple of weeks ago where I go into you know some detail on this but they're so they're gonna have to step these uh, um, step down the amount of sugar starting in 2024 2025 and then there's certain increments sort of after that where they have to step down the amount of sugar the amount of sodium inside the school lunches. I can give a couple of stats on this, which um, I, th I thought were pretty eyebrow raising. About 40 years ago, uh, about 5% of children were overweight, uh, let's say in the early 80s, and now it's 20%. So it's, it's basically quadrupled the, the number of children that, that, that are, are overweight or, or obese. And yes, some of that's related to activity, but it's also clear that a lot of this is related to to food consumption in, 19, in the 1970s, the average person ate 123 pounds of sugar every year. That's a lot. Today, it's 152 pounds of sugar every year. So a lot of it is just uh, simply, you know, sugar related. In the early 2000s, we made trans fats kind of persona non grata. I think now sugar is kind of the new, uh, you know, trans fat, and maybe uh, in the future, salt becomes the new 
the new sugar uh, because of the link there between between salt and uh, hypertension. So, um, you know, I think this is kind of the direction that that we're moving in. And uh, Rachel calls out a few sort of interesting you know, questions in the in, in, in her article, I mean, one of which is, okay, the, the, the Lunchables that are sold into schools have to comply with these rules, but the ones sold at retailer do not. So do you have a better tasting Lunchable on retail shelves, a worse tasting one in the school cafeteria? Does that then make the kids ask their parents to buy the ones in on the retail shelves and they just bring those you know, into the school and the ones that are sold directly in the school, maybe they're a little bit healthier, maybe they're not. Those just sort of serve as advertising. But in any event, um, it does seem like uh, Kraft Heinz has sort of found a new, you know, potentially lucrative, um, you know, revenue stream that's pretty standardized across, you know, everywhere. So you could see why that could be a relatively high margin product. And maybe this is, uh, is one thing that, you know, sort of gets around my initial thought with some of these USDA rules for, uh, improve, you know, lunches. I thought that would be sort of a lower margin type type business. You know, maybe there's some extra cost associated with, um, you know, making those lunchables healthier to comply with the standard, but 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 still a standardized product. Um, you know, nationwide. I think it's probably a, a, a good thing for Kraft Heinz. Maybe a not not a great thing for, um, you know, the healthfulness of of, of students. But um, we'll see how that uh, progresses. I'll move on to the next uh, uh, article that was written by. My colleague Steve Barrett, who is primarily an editor, a copy editor, and he wrote an article on the Cadbury egg theft in England. And so uh, there was a truck carrying a whopping 200,000 Cadbury cream eggs. It's a lot of cream eggs in a truck. This was stolen. So, so Steve wrote this humorous piece, as he does from time to time, on the theft of these Cadbury cream eggs. I saw some other articles that saying that they thought that the value of this was $40,000. I saw another one that says it was something in the $30,000 range. So that would come out to 24 cents an egg. And at retailer, these are at least a dollar an egg, sometimes, you know, dollar 25 an, an, an egg. So this is a very high margin um, product. I didn't realize it was quite, quite that high margin. Uh, but, uh, you know, Steve writes this article to talk about how much he hates Cadbury cream eggs. I think it's a product that you either love or hate. A lot of people feel like it does just doesn't feel like Easter without the Cadbury cream eggs, without their peeps. I think there's equal number of people who hate them. But I want to read an excerpt from Steve's article. He said that the eggs with caramel have a certain charm. It's hard to screw up caramel. But the ones with the insides that look like raw egg white and yolk wrapped in a, in a chocolate orb? No, just no. The interior of a Cadbury, Cadbury cream egg is made up of, of largely of white goo that can never look fully cooked, no matter how you boil, fry, scramble, poach, or Benedict in it. Who on earth finds that appealing? So uh, basically, Steve says, well, I'm surprised anyone even bothered to um, track down, file a report of 200,000 know, Cadbury cream eggs. Uh, Steve seems to think that this is a a service to humanity to uh, see those 200,000 Cadbury cream eggs disappear. So the Guardian um, said, well, this is, you know, fairly high value food type product. This must have been kind of a, a professional, a professional job, you know, not something that would be, that would, that would be random. Um, but in any event, uh, we've done our fair share of ripping CPG companies uh, in the past uh, week between calling uh, Lunchables, uh, Rachel calling Lunchables disgusting and uh, Steve saying that Cadbury cream eggs are essentially uneatable, 
I'm sure uh, Rachel meant, um, you know, discussing in terms of Lunchables in, in the nicest uh, possible way. Uh, but with that, I'll move on to just uh, talk about UTS uh, just a little bit. Like UTS, it's uh, sort of nostalgic and, well, um, because I lived in Baltimore for a long time. Probably the best tasting uh, potato chips I've ever had, uh, UTS brands. Uh, I think people in Baltimore take a lot of pride in that, uh, that, that UTS is a, is a local brand. It seems like they're pretty much everywhere. Uh, and basically what UTS said, I thought was kind of interesting. They said they had no plans to take any broad-based pricing actions, uh, at least further. Uh, and, and one thing they said about elasticity is they said that the elasticity has been pretty modest to non-existent. But they do expect that consumer pressure to start to grow. So not terribly inconsistent with what we've seen from other CPG companies, you know, some are saying, well, their prices still need to rise to make up for the, the cost inflation. Uh, uh, Uts specifically said they're now kind of offsetting that cost inflation and now prices can take a breather. So good news for their uh, fans. Um, but uh, I think consistent with a lot of what we've heard, um, you know, consumers in a pretty tough uh, place uh, right now. And also interesting, Uts eliminated about 350 SKUs. That's a trend we've heard a lot in uh, the CPG industry where, um, you know, they've looked, taken a hard look at their SKUs and cut the, um, cut the worst performing, uh, you know, SKUs. I don't think anything with, with us beats their uh, original uh, potato chips. Uh, with that, I'll move on to the freight markets. I always like to talk a little bit about the freight markets on this show and always talk a little bit about Sonar. And I think the freight markets, there's starting to be some evidence that the freight markets are at least showing some signs of uh, stabilization. You sort of go back the last couple of weeks and what, you know, sort of Walmart and Target said, you know, that sort of the panic of having too much in inventory seems to be over where those retailers are much more happy with uh, the, the amount of inventory they have right now, even though they say, you know, apparel still a little heavy. People seem to have stopped buying clothes. Uh, maybe that's work, work from home. Maybe that's cutting back on, um, uh, on just expenses. Uh, who knows? But have a van a contract chart I want to show from, from Sonar if, if we can get that up. And basically what the van contract rates show is that white line is 2023 and the van contract rates year to date down 9.2% when you compare the average 2023 rate to the average 2022 rate. Keep in mind, those do not include fuel surcharges, um, although the fuel is starting to get closer to where we're lapping a high period of, of, of last year, but still believe that's a little bit higher than it was uh, last uh, last year. And, and that that, in, that um, you know, decrease this year versus last year that does come um, after two uh, steep two years of steep uh, you know rate increases going from the 2020 which is that orange line into 2021 which is the blue line so at a, at a two year stack these line haul van rates still higher than they were what's also interesting is you just look at the tr sort of trajectory of the, the the green line that sort of declined throughout last year and you know this, into this year it's just sort of stabilized sort of flatlined right around that two dollars and let's call it 260 level 257 is the last um is is the last uh, metric so not a lot has happened um since late uh january and i want to pull up the next chart which is the van contract uh rates which is that is that same line it's just it's just not on a not on a yearly basis so van contract rates there in a line haul basis so excluding uh fuel surcharges are in white and then the spot rates also excluding fuel surcharges we take we use an algorithm to take out the fuel is in is in orange and you see, you see the spot rates uh for for dry van still significantly below 
you know, contract rates. Let's call it 64 cents a mile on average below the contract rates. Now you might say, well, why would anyone move freight on the contract market when you can move it cheaper on the spot market? And I think the reason is that some of the big uh, shippers, including a lot of some of the big CPGs, are saying, well, you know, we already, you know, got a negotiated a rate that was somewhat lower. You can see kind of earlier last year was kind of in that $3 range. So I already had sort of a significant discount. The fuel coming down off its high, you know, is, is lower cost to those shippers as, as well. And at the same time, they don't want to, you know, not give those, um, you know, they, they want to provide the, the carriers with a certain amount of just baseload freight volume uh, because uh, they, they want to have that capacity available. They don't want their loads to be the, t- their tenders to be the first tenders that are rejected when the market does turn. So they're trying to be a kind of a shipper of choice. You know, we'll sort of take care of you when the market's a little bit looser. You'll take care of us when the market's a little bit tighter because things will tighten up again. We don't know exactly when that'll be. I think most likely it'll be some combination of inventory restocking at some point. Uh, the retailers and others will have destocked their inventory to such a degree that those inventories will need to be rebuilt. I don't think we're quite there yet, although we're getting uh, closer. And then at some point, enough capacity will come out of the market where that will tighten up the market and capacity. That's kind of a slow process. That's really kind of lags uh, the, the the market conditions. Market condition has to be kind of you know loose for a while, and uh, and that causes the cap- capacity to, to to come out. So a combination of those two things, at some point, um, I think sh- the, the shippers that you know take care of their um, you know carriers now should should hopefully be in a in a better position. Uh, with that, I'll move on to the last you know, topic, which is just a little bit of a recap of last week's episode of. People Speaking Rail. I also do this other show, uh, which is on Thursdays on the railroad industry. If you're at all interested in the railroad um, you know, industry, I uh, encourage you to check that out. Do that with my colleague, Joanna Marsh, who does the editorial writing of uh, People Speaking Rail. I talk a little bit about the, uh, the data that we're seeing in the railroad uh, industry, but we had a really great guest on Thursday. It was Daniel Elliott, who is the former chairman of the U.S. Surface Transportation Board. And really has had a long career, has had a long career in the railroad industry. He's currently uh, an attorney at a firm in Washington, D.C. that works primarily on behalf of shippers and other railroad constituents. And I'll go through a few of the highlights for me as he's, he's still hearing lots of complaints from shippers on service issues, maybe they've improved, maybe they've improved a little bit, but there's still plenty of uh, sort of anecdotal uh, complaints on railroad uh, service. I, I asked him, I sort of, of of all the things that are on the current STB's docket right now, sort of what would really sort of move the needle in terms of uh, the shippers maybe getting a little bit of a break on service or rates. And the thing that came to mind for him was on the reciprocal reciprocal switching, which you know even if there aren't all that much isn't all that much freight that is diverted from one railroad to the other. Uh, the, the purpose of reciprocal switching is to enhance competition by um, mandating that there's a, an, an alternate quote uh, to move certain freight uh, and um, within a certain radius of where the original the freight is, is originally headed. It's 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 that way in, in some other countries. And um, you know he thought that would be the, the sort of the big single biggest uh, uh, needle mover. On uh, you know service and rates. Um, also asked him you know because he did have a 
long background with uh, rail labor, sort of, you know, why exactly the railroads are having a hard time recruiting and retaining workers, which is something they have not had a hard time doing historically. And I thought he gave kind of the definitive you know, answer, and I'm not going to be able to do it justice, but essentially it's some combination of the workers having to do uh, more with less amid precision scheduled, you know, railroading and, and also just the, you know, a lot of the work rules make it such that the, the employees are on call 24-7, 365. And he's also thought that there was kind of a mindset change where the workers in general prioritize, you know, lifestyle, sort of being at home, uh, you know, family time, you know, more so than they have in the past. So it sort of gives the example of if you're at your kid's you know, baseball game and you get a call and you're a railroad worker, you have to leave, you know, right in the middle of the game to, to go um, work and you might, you know, work, you know, very far away from home. It's kind of, you know, not just long hours when, you know, during the 12 hour, you know, shifts, but it's, it's uncertain hours and that uncertainty makes things, you know, difficult. So even though the railroads are making a big, you know, push now to give more, um, you know, sick days to a lot of these uh, unionized uh, workers, it almost seems like this is going to be a generational uh, challenge for the railroads to, to recruit and retain workers, which in turn, um, makes it th- makes me think that the railroad service issues are going to persist. That's been the the main, you know, culprit um, of the railroad service issues has been sort of a lack of a, a lack of workers. Uh, you know, finally, uh, Dan Elliott talked a lot about um, how the the regulatory process really takes a long time. Sort of went through that whole process and explained exactly why some changes to railroad regulations take a number of years. And believes that the thing that the railroad uh, the Surface Transportation Board is currently the most focused on is uh, approving uh, the the uh, Can- Canadian Pacific uh, acquisition of Kansas City uh, Southern. Uh, you know, or not. And that's sort of the main thing that they're focused on now and thinks maybe some of these other things are on the back burner because that's such a major uh, project. So with that, um, you know, encourage everyone to sign up for the, the CPG uh, newsletter at www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockouts. And uh, that's all I had uh, for you today. Hope everyone has a great day.